What's up, everyone? This is Hannah with the Healthy Charleston Podcast. I am a physical therapist here in Charleston, and I am the new host of this podcast. This podcast is meant to give you the correct health and fitness information, along with spreading awareness of all of the different health and fitness professionals here in Charleston. I love being able to use this podcast as a way to meet all of those around me that are trying to make the world a better place. And my mission as a PT is to educate people and to empower them to take ownership and control of their health. This is season three of the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Healthy Charleston. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. You. Thanks so much for listening to the show. This podcast is sponsored by Made to Move Physical Therapy, and we believe that movement is medicine. If you have been dealing with pain that's preventing you from doing what you love, and if you're looking for a healthcare provider to help you meet your goals, then go to madetomovept.com slash contact us. That two is the number two. Fill out the form and reference the Healthy Charleston podcast. Listeners get 10% off their first session. Welcome back, everyone, to the Healthy Charleston Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Briel, and today I'm talking with Casey Sullivan, who's actually a former client of mine, and throughout us working together, I learned a lot about what she does and a lot about her philosophy as a pediatric speech-language pathologist, and it really resonated with me and the way that I treat and my philosophy, and so I'm so excited for her to share it with you. She works with a lot of kids with developmental delays, a lot of which are suspected to be on the spectrum, and she's really an advocate for a more neurodiverse, strengths-based, child-led approach in therapy, um, and just overall, compared to the more typical behaviorism or compliance-based approach, she'll explain it a lot better than me. We dive into a lot of detail in her story here. If you're in healthcare, if you're a parent or a future parent, or you just love learning about neurodiversity and other philosophies definitely give this episode a listen learned a lot there are a couple websites i've put in the show notes if you're looking for more information otherwise thank you for listening hope you enjoy all right welcome back everyone to the healthy charleston podcast this is casey sullivan today she is a former client of mine very excited to have her back in the office and not for neck pain this time. <laughs> she works in the greater Charleston area as a pediatric speech language pathologist. I said it right the first time. Yes. Welcome, Casey. Thank you. Thanks, Anna, for having me. Yes. Very excited to learn more about you and what you do. Can you tell me more about your background and how you got started in speech language pathology? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I first actually moved to the Charleston area in 2020, right after the pandemic started. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I was living in New York city and, um, everything basically shut down. I was unable to leave my studio apartment without, you know, having a mask on and people would yell at you if you didn't have your masks on, even if you were just going for a walk. Yeah. So I had to get out of there. Um, and so I kind of was applying to jobs up and down the East coast and, um, I really was not interested 
interested in working virtually um, just because of the population I wanted to work with. Um, so I looked down south and I looked for some companies um, in the Charleston area. And so, um, yeah, I, I got my start really in home care. Um, so I was primarily working with the early intervention population, which is zero to three years old. And um, I was going around every day to people's homes um, and working with their toddlers and evaluating them to see if they had any sort of um, speech or language delays. Um, and so, yeah, but I was really first starting out. And so I had a supervisor who would tell me to do different things. And, you know, when initially I was shadowing her kind of before I actually started with my own clients um, and building my own caseload, she would sort of bring her bag of goodies into each kid's house and, you know, sit them down in a corner. And, um, you know, some of these kids, you could obviously tell that they were not interested in sitting still or in engaging with the specific toys that she wanted. And um, sometimes she would, you know, sit them down on her lap and sort of hold them down there and, you know, take their hand and it's essentially called hand over hand mm -hmm. where, um, she would take their hand and do sort of the tasks that she wanted them to do and, um, hopes that they would sort of learn to follow those directions. Um, and so that in particular, that hand over hand sort of compliance based approach was something that I never felt comfy with. Um, it just seemed very, um, it, it totally interfered with rapport. Um, and that's, you know, the, the biggest predictor of success in therapy is building rapport with your clients. Um, and especially with these little, you know, little toddlers, um, I just felt that there had to be a better way of approaching working with kids. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of went down some rabbit holes because I realized, you know, this is not working. I don't feel super aligned with this. And, um, my supervisor kept telling me, you know, just, you got it. Do less, you know, don't, Do don't, less. don't keep don't looking look for all this stuff. You're, you're fine. You're doing great. And I was like, all right, but this still doesn't, you know, it, it wasn't sitting right with me. So, um, you know, I went down some rabbit holes and learned more about, um, child led therapy and really just following the child's lead. Um, whether that's with toys that you brought into the environment or if it was, you know, you just, walking around with the kid and wandering and exploring stuff like you know going into cabinets and looking at the tupperwares and you know watching yeah exactly <laughs> so and especially if you're working with kids on the autism spectrum um you do sort of a lot of these you know things that people don't necessarily think of as play um and so yeah i i was like oh there there is a way that i can do this that that feels sort of more affirming of some of their differences um, and so that, that's kind of how I got started and how I really found this, um, this sort of new wave approach, um, which people are now calling it, you know, neurodiversity, um, where instead of viewing some of these kids as being, um, you know, disordered and having all of these deficits in their language learning, um, we just view it as they have some differences and they do things sort of on their own timeline. Um, or they have a bunch of these motor challenges, which makes it difficult for them to speak or communicate in a way that is um, more expected by the rest of society. So, so yeah, long-winded answer to a <laughs> very open-ended question, but hopefully that gives you a nice background. So, so it's like you're working with a human, not a diagnosis. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so yeah, it. Um, 
Yeah, especially with the DSM historically, um, when you view especially, you know, ADHD and autism spectrum disorder, I mean, even that, um, it just goes through a list of, you know, this child can't do this, they can't do that, they um, are not, you know, communicating effectively. They um, There's even wording in there sometimes that says, like, atypical behaviors and, you know, repetitive behaviors, restricted interests, um, you know, instead of things like, oh, this child is so interested in cars that they learn about cars until they are bored with them. So that freaking expert. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yep. So we, um, sometimes, um, refer to that as like learning to saturation. So Mm -hmm. they are literally so into colors and numbers that until they've seen every color on the rainbow and every shade and, you know, pastel and really rich color, um, they're, you know, not really bored yet. And so what someone might view as being a restricted interest, another person might say, you know, this is actually just a really intense interest. Mm -hmm. And especially if these kids and a lot of them do have some sensory differences, you know, they might just be seeing such a wide array of details that we, you know, as neurotypical people are missing. So yeah, we're the boring people. Yes. Neurotypical. I'm like, oh, that sounds boring. And and by neurotypical, um, I mean, um, a person who is not, you know, ADHD or not somebody who's on the spectrum. Um, usually that word, um, isn't meant to be, you know, normal quote unquote, but it's just, um, usually a contrastive term to mean someone without, um, those, those conditions. So tell me like how you feel in general about these specific diagnoses, like the DSM as a whole. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I, I think some people, so, you know, I personally have, um, some opinions about just having a diagnosis and, um, a diagnosis meaning any diagnosis. So, um, I have my own sensory differences. Um, and so growing up, um, I, when I was about eight years old, um, I started pulling my hair out. Um, and I, I pulled my eyelashes, my eyebrows, and then the hair on the back of my head. Um, at one point in time, I had a yarmulke sized bald spot, um, back I there. And... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it really was. And, um, so, and you know, when you're that young and you're doing it as a way to regulate your body sensations and your emotions, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was something I would do when I was like really intensely stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and also something I would do when I was bored. So I knew it was a way for me to kind of keep that homeostasis, you know, just maintain an even level, whether it was from, yeah, body sensations or emotions. Um, And everybody in my life, especially the adults, were always like, why? Why are you doing this? And I mean, I didn't know. I was eight. So at first I would deny it. Um, and then when I could, um, and when other kids started noticing, I would hide it. So, um, I, when I was in middle school, I wore Sharpie on my eyes <laughs> to pretend it was eyeliner because I was not allowed to wear makeup. Sharpie. Mm-hmm. And then in high school, when I started pulling out my eyebrows, I, you know, I would pencil them in and, but even that was very, um, not as mainstream as all of that stuff kind of is nowadays. Yeah. Like tattooed you know, eyebrows are the new thing. Exactly. Like, I mean, that's, that's what I have. I have yeah. my eyebrows tattooed. They look great. Thank yeah. you. And people have gotten a lot better at yes. those things, whereas mm-hmm. they used to look like an eight-year-old Sharpie them on. Yes, it's it's true. I mean, yeah. So that I I did a lot to sort of hide these differences that I had, especially because I I couldn't explain it. And um, a lot of people in my life just were like, you know what, you need to just try harder. You know, like instead of. Just pull in. How about you just don't? And oh, I was like, like I haven't tried that. You're like, oh, yeah. thank you. I'll mm-hmm. do that now. 
Exactly. Yes. Yep. So, um, yeah, it, it really created a lot of shame and guilt and, um, you know, that sort of underlying, you know, never feeling good enough is the reason why I have come to, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling down, I really doubt my abilities and, and it's just a lot of self doubt that really stems from those early years of not understanding why I was doing this to myself. Cause I mean, why would any kid purposely do that, you know, like for attention, like, nope, that's, that's not it. And, um, it really wasn't until I was in high school that I looked up on the computer um, oh, this has a name. It's called trichotillomania. And it has a, you know, it's it's under the OCD spectrum and the DSM. And so just knowing that, oh my gosh, there's a name for this. Like, mm. I'm not a crazy person. Mm. <laughs> I'm not deficient. Um, it's just something that I do to help my body cope yeah. um, was a huge relief for me. And um, so just having that name, um, instead of just always feeling different and always feeling like I was the only one in the world, who was doing this um, really, I think, helped me learn to self-advocate and say, you know, this is just something I do. Mm -hmm. Y'all can just think I'm weird or what, but, um, you know, it just, it helped me know that I'm, I'm more than just this. It's Mm -hmm. it's not something that defines me. It's something that I just, you know, do. And, um, as frustrating and, um, as, you know, just disappointed in myself as I was growing up. Um, because, you know, I would go for months and months and months without pulling Mm -hmm. if I was, you know, really stress-free, like over the summertime was perfect example Mm -hmm. of, I would never pull over the summer. And then as soon as school would come back around, I would just within like five minutes, like just yank out all my eyelashes and just all my eyebrows would be gone. And I would stand there in front of the mirror and just cry and be so mad at myself. Like, how could I do this? Like, what's wrong with you? And, and that sort of self-talk is, Mm -hmm. is really so harmful for kids. And, um, so, you know, just to kind of parallel this back to my work now, there's a lot of, um, compliance based training that goes into working with some of these kids with these sensory differences that focuses on rewards and punishments. And so, um, you know, a a lot of this behaviorism, um, for example, some of these kids, um, are very impulsive and so they will either, you know, get up and out of their seats and run around in the classroom or something. Um, and a lot of these teachers will say, okay, I'm going to give you a pizza party at the mm-hmm. end of the week or give you all these stickers mm-hmm. if you can do these things yeah. that are compliance based. Um, and if you don't do them, I will essentially punish you or you will get things taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that just creates this, you know, I'm just a bad kid. I'm a bad kid. So, oh. you know, it, it, and yeah, it just can lead to a lot of really negative, um, you know, internal feelings about yourself. And cause that kid grows up and becomes a real adult and no matter their behavioral challenges in childhood. Um, and so I think really taking into consideration a child's sensory differences and, you know, what supports they might actually need instead of just thinking that behavior is so concrete mm-hmm. that we can reward or punish it away. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's been paramount to just me working with kids and also informing some of the, um, school providers and working with, um, OTs actually in particular, uh, that's where I got all this information about sensory stuff is from all my awesome OT colleagues. Um, so yeah, there we go with another million hour oh, answer. <laughs> when you were, you know, eight yeah. like when you started mm-hmm. these behaviors, did anyone ever ask you like, Hey Casey, why are you doing that? Yes, everyone did. And I had no answer. 
And I don't know how I would have been able to answer because yeah. it wasn't something I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And um, so I, I think why is a really um, hard question. I, I know that's one of the first questions that parents ask mm-hmm. kids, even little toddlers who are like, oh, why'd you hit your brother? They're trying to understand, but yeah. like, the kid doesn't understand. No, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> I think um, a big thing parents can do um, is just notice that behaviors from kids are usually a signal of some kind that either their child is you know, feeling some type of way, whether it's um, dysregulated and I need to go move my body or I'm feeling you know, disconnected from mom or dad and I need I need something is usually mm-hmm. what behaviors are um, whether it's smacking brother or you know doing things that seem intentional like here I am about to push this lamp off the table yeah even that from a really young child um, mm-hmm. can just be a sign that hey I'm, I'm lacking something mm-hmm. in some area and um, figuring out doing that investigative work yeah. um, is really the important part of trying to figure out how to change those behaviors. So instead of, you know, don't do that, do this instead, it's more like, let's look at a deeper level. Why is this person doing this? Mm-hmm. And like, I think with kids, a lot of the times we're just like, oh, they're kids. Yeah. And there's, we assume that there's no there's no reason other than that like they're just kids Mm -hmm. but then they never really like you said they never understand it and then they just feel like a bad kid Mm -hmm. and I I liked what you said like I think diagnosis diagnoses diagnoses (laughs) they can be really powerful in a good way and also in a bad way because you finally felt understood because you were like oh like there is a name for this aka I'm not the only person that does this Mm -hmm. But then also sometimes I feel like diagnoses can be self-limiting and like labeling. It can go both ways. It sounds like your experience was that it was really positive and it made you, it it affirmed you rather than making you feel even more isolated. Yeah. Yeah. In what cases like have you seen that it's actually you know, limiting or maybe negative? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, um, I do have some children that I work with who have, um, you know, not necessarily autism, but some different types of diagnoses. So, um, I have a couple of kids who have some rare, you know, chromosomal deletions or genetic syndromes. Um, and sometimes because of that diagnosis, a parent will underestimate their child's abilities. Mm -hmm. And, um, so in also, I mean, same with kids on the autism spectrum who maybe have some higher intensity support needs. Um, so what I mean by that is maybe children who are non-speaking, um, or who cannot move their bodies independently, um, and who maybe can't like open doors or they don't have some of those fine motor skills. Um, some of those parents may think, Oh, my child's not listening Mm. or my child is, um, unable to do this thing by themselves. So I'm going to dote on them hand and foot. Um, and so it is, it's really tough. I mean, first of all, I can't imagine being a parent at all. I'm, I'm not one yet. (laughs) And sort of knowing that fine line of, okay, I don't want my kid to be so frustrated that they give up on doing some of these tasks, but I do also want them to grow in their independence and maximize their abilities so that they feel, you know, I, I can do this. I'm a resilient kid. I have the ability to do these things with the right supports. I think figuring out how to coach parents in that direction mm-hmm. has been something that I have worked on and continue to work on. Um, it's, yeah, it, it is 
really hard, especially if there are multiple caregivers involved. You know, maybe it's not just mom and dad, but it's mom, dad, aunt, uncle, you know, cousin, mm-hmm. brother, um, mm-hmm. lots of lots of um, adults in this child's life. Um, and so I think it's important to know, um, especially because of movement difficulties, that some kids may have much greater abilities that they're a- than they're able to demonstrate. Um, do you know much about, um, I know in speech, we have a diagnosis called apraxia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dyspraxia as it relates we to the whole body. Apraxia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We okay. learned about it in, in yeah. neuro. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so apraxia of speech is, um, when a child's, um, essentially the messages from the brain mm-hmm. to the mouth do not cooperate. And so a kid's, you know, brain is saying, okay, say cow. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying. But book. Yes. Or, or just like, mm, or mm, 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 comes out yeah. um, instead. So they sort of sounds come out their nose or it'll be like, mm, gah, or something totally different. They can't coordinate. Yes. Yep. Say. And um, especially with some kids who are non-speaking, um, I have a couple of kids who um, it affects their voice. So they can't turn their voice box on. Um, it affects their breath support. So um, they talk like this because they can't expand their lungs to take a really big breath in order to say a longer sentence. Um, And so some kids with those intense um, apraxic or dyspraxic whole body issues, um, you know, they, they can't communicate or even point to the right picture that the SLP is trying to get them to say, hey, I know this um, like I know what a ball is. Mm-hmm. Okay, point to ball. If their arm isn't even cooperating, they yeah. can't do that task. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot of times where um, kids might actually know things that they are just not able to demonstrate. So how do you know that they know them? How do you figure so, that out? <laughs> this is gonna go. Oh, we're gonna go down such a rabbit hole. Um, so, <laughs> so really, um, and this is sort of an area that's controversial in my field. Um, but first and foremost is, um, we need to get this child a, um, a way of communicating effectively. Um, and so whether that is with a picture board or a more robust communication system, like a high tech device, um, like I have some kids who use iPads and, Mm -hmm. um, there are a bunch of picture supports and it also Mm -hmm. has single words on there, um, that they can sort of punch out sentences Mm -hmm. and then it will speak for them. Mm -hmm. Um, technology, like, yes, we did not have that. Oh no. (laughs) So cool that we have that. Yes. Um, but then there is also, um, a, a method of communicating. Um, so, um, these children are spellers, um, children or adults, I should say. Um, so some, um, kids or adults are able to just point to letters Mm -hmm. on a uh, alphabet board to mm-hmm. spell out sentences or single words in response to being asked That's questions. Mm-hmm. But it takes a lot of initial prompting and some tactile, you know, um, touch cues for them to learn those skills at all because of just how uncooperative their bodies are initially. Yeah. So <laughs> that yeah. letter board um, to communicate in particular is um, a little controversial because there have been some cases. Um, I want to say a couple of decades ago where, um, some, um, 
uh, facilitators of that. So initially the ones who are doing mm-hmm. the prompting and they're sort of helping hold the child's arm initially, um, they were making the child sort of answer in ways that the child Answered did not things. want. Yep. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Or, um, there were cases of abuse and, um, the child was unable to sort of effectively communicate that because their facilitator was the one who was doing some of the abusing. And so, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all really, heavy stuff Mm -hmm. when your kid does not have an effective way to communicate some of this stuff. Um, and so me as, you know, a speech therapist, I have always, um, been trying to find out ways more and more that I can just help some of these kids. Um, so, so yeah. So back to your story Mm -hmm. of you had the supervisor, the way that she was treating just like didn't fit your beliefs and your experiences you found this new way of viewing mm-hmm. things. What happened then? So you, how did you start, like, what did you start looking up? How did you start figuring this out? And then how did you incorporate that into your practice now? Yeah, sure. Um, so social media really helped me figure out a lot of the different therapy techniques and um, new sort of approaches that um, are not necessarily taught or emphasized in graduate school. Mm. Um, And so there is definitely more of a compliance-based push in the graduate schools. Mm. Um, And, you know, what I mean by that is, okay, um, the therapy consists of, okay, let's practice following directions. And so do this, you know, go give mom a high five. Okay, now Mm. come back. Now go give dad a high five. And first of all, that's so boring. And second of all, um, kids spend their whole lives being told what to do Mm. that, um, I've just found it to be so much more effective when you become a, a buddy and, you know, follow what they're doing and their interests and learn how to embed some of the things that you're targeting into the things that they like. Um, so it doesn't feel like work when it's just fun stuff. Um, See, and I would think that would be way harder because you have is. to be <laughs> on the fly a lot more of like, this is the goal for the session, but uh-huh. figure out how you're going to, you know, get them to do that. And then it, it also yeah. just might not work at all. Uh-huh. Exactly. But yeah. I think that's the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you're not trying to like force this. Thing. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, um, yeah, it, it's... Um, especially with kids on the autism spectrum. Um, so if you're teaching, you know, multi-step directions, um, you know, some of those difficulties in following directions might just be because their attention is elsewhere. You just gave them seven different things to do. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, instead of practicing, okay, like touch your nose, then touch the floor, then give me a high five, Mm -hmm. you know, we can instead, um, just provide some picture supports, um, Um, to sort of help with a directions that are important um, because you know touching your nose touching the floor then touching you know like doing that important and is that going to generalize to real life and everyday important directions that are necessary for them to follow let's make sure you can do what I say yes exactly so (laughs) that and that what you just said right there do as I say is is a compliance thing um, whereas we, I really want to foster kids abilities to, um, to communicate and say no when they want to say no and to be able to do the important things that are a part of life, um, in ways that are going to help support their, you know, neuro differences. So 
It's it's a lot of really confusing stuff. I don't even know if I'm explaining any of oh, this well, but no, I don't think it's confusing. I think you're explaining it very well. Sometimes I, I go more... off on these rants, and then people are like, "What is she even talking about?" So <laughs> I think it's more like mind-boggling that there there is another way in the sense of like we are still very focused on do as I say yes. and reward and punishment, and it's like yeah. when you look at it like. The strength base, the child led, the differences, mm-hmm. not deficits. It's almost like, why haven't we been doing this this way? Not even across just kids with developmental delays, but yeah. just like across any type of therapy. Yep. Yeah, kids in general. I mean, and and so it's always interesting to me. I have some parents who have pushed back on, you know, that sort of approach and even other practitioners who say, well, that's not real life and that's not um, just to follow the kid's lead all the time is not... Um, they have to do certain things to just exist in the world. And, you know, we have to do things that we don't like sometimes. And, you know, I would respond back, you know, and say, okay, well, give me a specific example. Because I think for everything that might seem compliance-based, we can figure out how to do a strengths-based approach in working with um, a child. So, for example, um, I have some children who are not interested in taking showers. Same. And That's yeah. <laughs> but honestly, as a kid, I was like, I hate this. Yes. And, and then, like, the water, I had to, like, yeah. put a towel right here. I didn't like the water in my <laughs> eyes. It yeah. burned. There you go. So, I mean, so I, I, but so for a child who's not able to communicate that, ah, okay. and, and they just, um, you know, throw a whole tantrum yeah. um, in response to being, you know, shown, oh, hey, time to go take a bath, or, or sorry, a shower, or mm-hmm. um, just having even the door open to say, oh, time to go take a shower. Yeah. They, um, they, A, might not, you know, want to go at all, but figuring out that why is important. So, um, especially for autistic kids, um, some kids might not want to do something because they don't have a strong concept of time yet. So, um, I have this issue where sometimes I will listen to music in the shower because I don't know if it's been five minutes or if it's been an hour that I've been in there (laughs) if I'm not wearing my watch. Yeah. So, um, if I know, oh, two songs have gone by, it's probably been eight minutes or 10 minutes. Now I should probably get out. Um, that can be a fun way of saying, okay, is it that this kid doesn't know when the shower is going to end? So they think they're going to be in, in purgatory forever. Shower yes, exactly. Or is it that they aren't sure of the steps that it takes to shower and they hate having somebody over their shoulder telling them what to do every five seconds. Okay. Wash your hair. Okay. Wash it out. Now do conditioner. Yeah. Now wash your body. Um, especially for my older, like tween children, it's really tough to be like, "Ugh, mom, get out of here. Yeah. I want privacy. Yeah. Um, and so finding a way for them to be more independent in using the shower, um, whether that's having some pictures of all right, first we need soap, then we need conditioner, mm-hmm. then we need to, you know, wash it all out, then get a towel and dry off. Mm-hmm. Even just having a little picture support might be more helpful. Like something but, in the shower that's like, here's yes. what the shower might look like. Mm-hmm. And to assume that it's just because the kid doesn't want to is just so, it's such an easier mm-hmm. way of thinking. Like, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't take into consideration consideration all of the different reasons why a child especially one that has difficulty communicating might have trouble in engaging in this activity it doesn't take into account that they're human yes with like very (laughs) individualized experiences and also nuance yes and so it's it's harder to explain it's harder to explain on social media it's harder to explain to parents yeah 
it's like, it's like, oh, that movement is just bad for you. Like, that's a very easy cop-out way yeah. to be like, oh, that's why your knee hurts. But that's not it at all. But it's mm-hmm. so much harder to explain because, like, pain and uncomfortable sensations are yeah. very complex. So it's more of like, like you said, like viewing it as a signal. Why is this kid so uncomfortable with the shower? Yeah. Not, why do they not, like, not, oh, they just don't want to. But, like, why are they uncomfortable? Yeah. So what would a compliance-based therapy look like in terms of the shower? Sure. Great question. So, um, in the shower and do it. Well, yeah. So yes, that's the answer is that, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes that entails picking up the child and putting the child in the shower when they are visibly distressed. Um, and just saying, okay, well first shower, then iPad time. And so we will reward, reward you for Ooh, ignoring ignoring your body sensations if the shower is too much, and maybe we could just take a bath instead. Um, mm-hmm. And saying, okay, for I don't, I don't essentially don't really care necessarily what the reason is, um, and just rewarding the behavior that is expected or desired by the adults who are putting that program yeah. in place. And so um, it's definitely not. Um, the only compliance-based approach, um, a lot of more new wave sort of um, behaviorism has said that, oh, we really are trying to take into consideration some sensory differences and some executive functioning differences and um, all of those things that do affect some kids on the spectrum um, or some kids who you know have ADHD, et cetera. Um, but f- for the most part, and especially... Um, as we learn more from autistic adults online, um, a lot of the ones who experienced um, compliance-based training or even just compliance-based parenting, um, they sort of grew up saying, hey, this was really traumatic for me. And um, if not traumatic, then it at least affected my view of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just the more relationship-based approach and the getting to know your child and mm-hmm. investigating um, all of that, you know, in line with the neurodiversity movement um, has really just started to shift some of the ways that we view, um, you know, working with kids and also parenting. And, and yeah, it's, it's just, I think, going to lead to hopefully a generation of some more um, mentally stable children. I hate to say that. And it's so funny, especially with social media um, kind of being on the rise. Everyone's like, our kids are just, you know, everyone's going to have anxiety and depression. And you do see some of those numbers um, skyrocketing. But um, I do not believe that it's a result of some of these paradigm shifts. Um, people are like, you're just babying them. But I, I don't think that's the case at all. And the new research, especially that of, um, you know, Mana Delahook and Janet Lansbury um, and some of the occupational therapists that I look at. So um, uh, Greg Santucci and Sarah Salvaggi Hernandez, um, a lot of them are seeing, you know, hey, these relationship-based approaches Mm -hmm. are actually leading to kids who have a a much better sense of self and are much more resilient than the ones who are just told you are good or you are bad for doing X. That is exactly the same in physical therapy. Like (laughs) all of the research says the one thing that matters the most is that the 
patient knows you and trusts you yes. and that you have a relationship with the them. The client-clinician relationship. Exactly. exactly. Rapport is everything. Resilience <laughs> and outcomes are so are to be expected if you have mm-hmm. a relationship versus yeah. just, oh, you have these dysfunctions, let's fix these dysfunctions. It's yeah. like, it's just, but it's way harder because now you have to, you're viewing this person not as, oh, a kid should normally have this. You're not, it's not a checklist anymore. Like, mm-hmm. It's a blank slate. Yeah. Okay, just tell me about you. What is this kid like? And it takes a while to mm-hmm. to learn that and to get to know. And then once you do get to know, okay, well, what are you struggling with? You know, what's this kid struggling with via the parents? And making it very like values-based and yeah. goal-based based on like what they need, what they care about, not just like, Oh, well, society says this is how you shower. Society mm-hmm. says you have to high-five mom and pick this up. It's like, let's actually make it relate to their lives and also what they care about. And then they're going to be way more motivated, too. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, I'm all on board. You from day one. Oh, my gosh. Well, I love that you even said, you know, just taking into consideration the whole person. I mean, when, when I was seeing you as a physical therapist, you know, I um, didn't notice until seeing you the effect that stress had on my neck and back pain. So I was like, oh, I am just really pushing myself way too hard. And instead of, you know, continuing to go, hey, I'm going to go twice as hard in the gym. Maybe I actually have to just chill out a little bit, (laughs) reduce some of that stress and my neck and back pain will, you know, resolve at least to some degree. Mm -hmm. So just taking that in consideration, you know, I I think if you were to just be like, oh, just do these exercises and not ask me any of those other like person based questions, um, I think you wouldn't have gotten the whole picture at all like so. you're not neck pain you're casey exactly yes. yeah 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 but you mm-hmm. can communicate yes and you're not a kid exactly and so like now take all of those challenges for maybe someone who like doesn't know what stress is doesn't know what anxiety mm-hmm. is just feels yeah. and just responds because we're always like you said homeostasis like we're always trying to restore homeostasis yeah that sometimes it's just we're like i don't know why i do this i just do exactly. it yeah yeah so the Compliance based is like what we would call maybe like what's behaviorism. Behaviorism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then this, I don't even want to call it like new way of thinking because like yeah. I said, like it's been around for decades, but strengths based, right? Yeah. Child led therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did parents respond? to that. What does that look like? So it kind of depends. Um, I do have some parents who, um, are maybe less involved or, um, are, you know, and, and some of this is maybe because, um, you know, mom is working all day. And so I only see the child at daycare or, um, I only see this child with, Mm -hmm. um, babysitter or grandma, or sometimes it's auntie or, you know, it, it really depends. Um, and so, um, There are other parents who, um, you know, especially if this child is their first child, um, sometimes if I point out to them certain characteristics of things that are, hmm, you know, I I notice that your child likes to um, look at these objects from the side. Um, They're looking at them really closely, and then they look at this object from far away, and then they line up the objects, Um, and those things are, you know, some characteristics of autism. Um, If I point some of those things out, um, I do notice some parents get really um 
nervous and anxious and some of them will shut down or they will, um, you know, I, I notice that they're either not following through on some of the things that I am maybe suggesting that they do in their day-to-day lives, or they just, um, I can feel rapport starting to decrease between Mm -hmm. me and parent, even if me and kiddo are still buddies. Mm -hmm. Um, and so kind of making sure that the parents are supported and, um, understanding, you know, a diagnosis, especially of autism, does not have to be a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, it, it even a diagnosis doesn't have... It, it has... You have no idea what this yeah. child's life is going to look like, even in a couple of years, mm-hmm. even if there is a diagnosis early on. Um, and so I think just the really, really big stigma that exists out mm-hmm. there about autism um, gets in the way a lot. And um, I, you know, can understand why um, it's really daunting to think, you know, I might have to be the one who advocates for my child with my relatives, with my neighbors, with people who don't understand, especially if my kids sometimes like smacks other people, if they invade that child's space, um, you know, just feeling strong enough and feeling, um, okay enough to even know what resources are available. Um, yeah in order to support that child sometimes, um, because you've, you've got resources from all the different places and a lot of them, especially the ones that doctors initially recommend are behavior based. Um, and so just knowing that some parents can, you know, if you look in the right places, um, find some stuff that does support more of a neurodiversity affirming approach Mm -hmm. and, um, just, you know, view of their child. Um, I found that the ones that do get on board with it, um, or at least are open to me sort of helping guide them into that, um, space. Um, they just enjoy their child more. And, um, you know, some parents have even noticed, Oh, Hey, you know, sure. My kid does this, you know, or lines their things up or is only interested in animals. But, you know, I only have like, I I have a giant stamp collection or (laughs) I'm like also very into cars. And, um, so just kind of viewing it as a, Hey, I can relate to my child. It doesn't, make them, you know, different or othered. Exactly. And so, um, just sort of finding that, um, way to connect with them. Um, it can really make all the difference. Um, you know, but at the same time, especially if a child has really substantial support needs, it can be really challenging to buy into this approach. Um, when sometimes the strengths-based approach might take longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do work with some individuals who, um, you know, as they get older, they get bigger and stronger mm-hmm. and sometimes, um, meltdowns or outbursts can, um, be, you know, result in physically aggressive behavior. And so it's, it's really tough, um, to always say, you know, let's just follow their lead. If, if, you know, sometimes, um, they want to do things that might put them in a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. So I have, um, for example, I have a five-year-old that I work with who now is able to climb, um, Mm -hmm. over her, the fence of her yard. And, um, she's really interested in, I know she's really, (laughs) she's so strong. She's non-speaking right now, but, um, she is, you know, interested in a lot of water and she's got these alligator ponds right behind her house. And so it's really scary for parents to, um, you know, give her that out outdoor time because it's so regulating. She's got a swing out there. She's got a trampoline out there, but Mm -hmm. then to also know that 
if she's out there by herself, like she, she, she can't be because we can hop the fence and, you know, potentially be interested in that very dangerous situation. So, um, a lot of parents might resort to a more strict behavior based, um, at least for some scenarios because they, um, are involving safety. And so, um, I think it's, it's important for parents to at least know that there are options out Mm -hmm. there and, you know, maybe even a mix of both is something that is what works for them and their families. And, you know, just know, Knowing that, um, like whatever works for you and, um, you find therapists that you relate to and that you trust, um, and that helps support you and your child. I think, um, just knowing that all all of that exists out there, um, and that, yeah, it's, it's so hard to be a parent to then have to defend your decision-making to, you know, other therapists or school practitioners, or even, you know, your own family members. It's gotta be so tough. So well, no parent, no parent wants to cause harm. That's exactly. The exactly. The biggest fear mm-hmm. to like hurt their yeah. kid or harm their kid. Yes. It's like every parent is doing the best that they can yeah. with what they have. And like, if you've grown up in a certain way, you just think, okay, well, that's how I need to raise my kids. Yes. And it's like, now you need to completely learn a new, a different way. Mm-hmm. But at some point, like you said, like they start to enjoy it more because they're not just trying to fit their kid in a box. Yeah. They can understand their kid more. They can relate to their kid more. But I think it's more of the, you're playing the long game mm-hmm. versus just like, oh, let me train you. Yes. It's more of like, oh, let me really learn. And I, I think the big theme here with you is that it's not rigid and yeah. we're going to find what works best for you and your family in a lot of different situations Yeah, to, to help you like... We're not trying to fix you. Mm-hmm. We're trying to help you like live the highest quality of life that you can. Not like, oh, well, you know, by age 10, you shouldn't need to come see me anymore because you're fixed. Like, yes, that's not it at all. It's like, let me continue to be your guide to help you learn how to do life. Yes. But I literally could not have said it better myself. Yeah. You are so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned some resources for parents like... What can parents do? What information can they find? Do you have resources that parents sure. can use? Yeah, yeah. So um, I found a lot of really great information on a website called Learn, Play, Thrive. Um, this is a site that I think is geared towards occupational therapists, but I, I just find that, you know, the sensory and the language, it's all its all related. Um, and so that that site is really great. Um, I, I think I mentioned Mona Delahook and Janet Lansbury, but those two authors um, have multiple books out. And I think... Um, um, maybe some podcasts as well. Um, and yeah, those two women are just wonderful. Um, they do a lot of, you know, whole brain parenting. Mm. Um, so taking that neuro into consideration as you help support your kids, you know, regardless of uh, a diagnosis or not, um, you know, so that, that work. Um, and then also if, um, parents are more interested in some, um, you know, more progressive advocacy-based work. Um, the website Neuroclastic um, is Neuro-clastic? a great one too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Neuroclastic. Okay. Um, that one's a good one too. So, so yes, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And where can our followers and listeners find you? What do you do? <laughs> so I, I work for um, a company called Sweet Talkers. Um, we're over on James Island, and um, we um, actually partner with an occupational therapy group called Bloom Children's Therapy. So um, us OT and speech people, we are. Um, 
clinic-based, but we also see children in the home um, or, you know, in the daycares. Um, So we um, are a relatively smaller group. Um, We have a clinic on James Island on Folly Road, sort of right before the Walmart um, in Fort Johnson. And um, then we also have a clinic space that we share with Bloom um, over in Mount Pleasant. Um, but yeah, we, we've got just such a great group. I'm, I'm so lucky to be a part of it because they really have, especially the founder, Lisa, has just um, really supported my, you know, intense <laughs> learning interest in just wanting to deep dive into all of the topics and figure out more about supporting these kids. Um you know, she's just always like, oh, do you want to take this course? And, oh, you're interested in this one. All right, let's do it. You know, we'll find a way to make it work. And Mm -hmm. um, especially I have a bigger training that I think I'm interested in doing in the fall. And she's like, you know what, we'll figure out a way to make it work. (laughs) And so um, we've got some social skills groups and um, some, you know, just social activity groups for some of our older children. Um, That is pretty unique to us. And then we also have a couple of um, groups for Down syndrome kids. um, And And so, um, Katie leads that one. Um, and that sometimes happens on the weekends. So, um, you know, that, that is something that's unique to us. And then also just in general, I've, I've found that my group is really interested in collaborating and working with the school-based providers. Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, we're all so busy as providers, but it's so important to have that multidisciplinary coordination. And so just taking that extra time to sort of check in with the school-based provider and the teachers, um, is something that I think we do really well as a group. So Sweet Talkers and our website is, um, sweettalkers.biz. And we do have a Facebook and Instagram as well. Dot biz. Yes. That's dot biz. cute. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. What is something that you wish more people knew or understood about strength space and child blood therapy? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that just recognizing that your your kid is unique, you know, and that it's going to take an individualized approach to work with any child, no matter if the difficulties are um, related to um, communicating or using mouth words, as we call it, or if this child just can't say there are sound. Um, it really is going to take an individualized approach for any child that you see. Um, and I think just figuring out a way to enjoy your kid um, and know that if you are okay, they're going to be okay. And um, finding some good practitioners that help you do that investigative work Mm -hmm. um, just so you can ensure the best outcome for them. Um, Yeah, I think so many parents get caught up in the like, what's my child's future going to look like? But if you're not focused on the now and helping them be supported and happy in the Mm -hmm. now, um, you know, you can't live in the future. We got to just focus on the day to day and the week to week and um, that future will come and it'll be different you know, for every kid, no yeah. matter, no matter what's going on with that kid. Um, so just to remind yourself to stay present and, and stay focused on the here. Love that. Thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Everyone. Thank you for listening. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I just asked Casey, because we were talking about after the podcast, <laughs> how do you feel that it's called speech language pathology? Yeah. Uh, so this is a great question. Um, and I have some people that I either have seen online or, um, some, 
uh, individuals that I know who are not interested in the name at all, just because it doesn't really go into the whole breadth and scope of what we can do. Um, so just to give you a little bit of um, more of a background about what speech can do. So um, in my field, uh, especially if you are a generalist or somebody who works across the lifespan, um, it is expected that you know about um, working with individuals. Um, so in the pediatric realm, um, this child might have hearing loss. Um, they might have difficulty eating and swallowing. Um, they might have difficulty in pronouncing their words. They might have difficulty communicating their message in general. Um, they might have um, uh, difficulty um, as they're older in um, remembering specific details, um, in reading, in <laughs> doing, putting their thoughts onto paper um, in an academic sense, um, and then in adulthood and beyond, um, in the sort of geriatric realm, there is the you know traumatic brain injury and working with people who have had um, you know. It, brain insults and um, all of these things that affect language and swallowing and all of the stuff. So there's that. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a whole lot of stuff that we could be doing just in this one field of speech language pathology. And um, so I have my my one um, professor, Dr. Raquel May from graduate school up at New York Medical College. He joked um, because he worked primarily in the acute care hospitals um, in New York um, doing swallowing and swallowing therapy, he would call himself a swallowologist. Oh my god! <laughs> but then, but then also, um, there is a an individual online who um, they are the uh, the speechologist. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think she has, um, or they have, even said that they're interested in calling themselves a communicologist because it really is just so it's so all over the place. And I think pathologist assumes that um, we are fixing something mm -hmm. and that there is something wrong with the person or individual that we are working with. Um, so I don't love the title. Um, I think therapist though too, sometimes has a connotation that, um, we aren't as knowledgeable as we might seem, um, which mm. is absurd. Um, because I've just listed so many things <laughs> that I just glanced over. I was like, what? I, well, it's true. So, um, you know, some people who just hear that, oh, I'm a speech therapist. Yeah. They're like, oh, so you work with kids who can't say their S sound or yep. their R sound and that's it. And, um, you know, it's uh, nope, not even close. So I, I, I'm not sure what I would change it to, but I do yeah. think there's some funky with the name for sure. Yeah. So. I think people feel the same way about physical therapy. Yeah. Like they just, they picture, you know, I'm only working with older people or yes. maybe more neuro populations learning how to mm -hmm. walk or like, I'm just rubbing someone's knee and it's like, I don't really do any of that. that or that much. you don't have your doctorate. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and also I get like therapists. I don't love calling our clients patients yes. because like sure. people choose to, to be here to participate in therapy and I, patients sometimes feel like they're locked down. They're a, like more of a victim. Yes. The client is like, I I'm choosing and I'm a part of this. Yeah. Um, like on my podcast last week, um, Maggie, when she was in the hospital recovering, they were like, you're a patient. Yeah. But at her like outpatient recovery, she was a client. Okay. And it's also just more empowering. Sure. Um, so I don't know. I go back and forth because also patient signifies that you're a doctor. It's just like, there's a lot of semantics, but, um, yes. but yeah. words are powerful. And, you know, oh, yeah. I, I am somebody who is, is very, very, um, in agreement with that statement. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 
yeah, words can make all the difference and just oh, yeah. figure out a way to, um, to, to communicate better. Yep. Exactly. To be a communicologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. A communicologist. I guess. That's yes. what Casey wants to be called now. Might have to trademark that one. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head on over to Instagram. Find us at Healthy Charleston. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you ever have any topics you want us to talk about or guests you want to bring on, feel free to DM us. Otherwise, thanks again.